Welcome to Trust Issues, a podcast by Kepler Trust Intelligence. Please be aware that there can be a time lag when we release podcasts, meaning time-sensitive information may no longer be accurate at the time of publication. Also note that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It's strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. Finally, Kepler Partners LLP has a relationship with the company covered in this podcast, which may impair its objectivity. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues. Today, I am joined by Kirsty Fong. Uh, Kirsty is the manager of the Aberdeen New India Investment Trust. So, Kirsty, thanks very much for for joining us. Uh, perhaps to get started, uh, I think probably people can infer roughly what you do from the name of the trust. But just so, for someone that is is uh, not familiar with it, could you talk a bit about what you do? So, you know, where do you invest? What your object- objectives are? Sorry, and, and and all that sort of stuff. Yep, sure. So, hi David, and hi um, everyone. Um, well, I guess never assume that the name speaks for itself, but I am with the firm Aberdeen and this investment trust is invested in Indian equities. So stocks listed in India or doing business mainly in India. Um, given how India is a growth market, you know, our objective is really to deliver long-term capital appreciation and dividends is actually a secondary um, consideration. Great. Well, to get started, I think most people who are who are kind of market watchers in Asia, or you know, even if they even if they don't know all the the finite details, will probably be aware that at the moment, uh, India is kind of a bit of a standout performer in terms of valuation. So if you look at if you compare it to say China or, or a lot of other emerging markets, uh, it's you know it looks pretty pretty uh, high on a say four P basis or on a price to book basis. Um, so I think partly, it's, you know, that seems that's like a function of the fact China has has kind of fallen off a cliff and its weighting in the index is is pretty large, so that can sort of skew things. Um, but I think that also points to another factor, which which may be affecting valuations, which is basically that China looks very unappealing. So it might be the case that investors in emerging markets sort of feel like their options are a bit limited. And so um, I, I suppose my question then is, do you do you fear that the or do you worry about the fact that uh, valuations might just be a bit of a function of market dynamics? Um, or do you think that high valuations are basically because, you know, they're warranted, <laughs> you know, Indian companies are going to deliver better earnings growth. And so the, the high valuations make sense. Um, or um, are, you, are you concerned at all about sort of risks around maybe sentiment? So if, you know, if China starts to look more attractive, do you think that could result in in outflows? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of everything you say, really. Um, Maybe just taking a few steps back. Um, I mean, I've been looking at Indian equities for almost 20 years now, and India has always, always looked expensive. Um, And actually, if you dissect that market, then that premium really comes from how in India you have quite a few options of listed private sector businesses and multinational companies. And that's something you don't actually find in many other emerging markets and especially China. So that's that's one. It's always been expensive for that reason. It's also always been expensive because as a country, it's always offered um, that promise of higher earnings, higher growth, um, which hasn't always worked out. 
um, if you think about the last decade, you know, India has actually undershot that potential, given that it's gone through quite a few cycles. Um, so that's the context there. Um, today, we have India that has seen a broadening of that better quality across sectors and, and types of companies. I would even say that public sector companies are looking better these days. Um, and you have, you know, new generations of business businesses up and coming, you know, being listed. So actually, you know, the quality of Indian equities has improved by and large. Um, so that supports that premium valuation. Um, and with better macro tailwinds, you know, better government policy support, um, you know, the structural outlook for India is actually looking better than before. So arguably, you know, there is a reason for these valuations to hold at a premium to China that, you know, in a sense, very timely, um, as you as you say, it's actually, there has been a lot of concerns around China, which meant that there's a lot of flows moving into India that, you know, for a long time has been under-owned. So yes, you're very right that, um, you know, that premium is here to stay, but we are concerned that there could be some rotation back because China is looking very cheap as well. Um, but that to us is really an opportunity to be buying on the weakness because of all the structural um, positives that India offers. Okay, well, I think one of the one of the structural or, or a lot of the structural uh, tail, tailwinds that, that you might want, we'll, we'll probably end up talking about, um, I think a lot of people would probably say that they are the result of reforms that, that um, Modi, who's a prime minister, ha has made. Um, and so, again, I think people who are sort of passive watchers of India will probably be aware that there, there's an election next year. Um, I, I kind of find that when people talk about Modi, it can end up being a bit like uh, it can end up being a bit like someone talking about Margaret Thatcher in the UK. Uh, part, part, partly because he sort of seems to be like a bit of a Marmite figure, where you either really like him or you really dislike him. But um, also just because I think people, people in the you know, people have a broad sense that um, Margaret Thatcher introduced changes that were, were good for business, but might not necessarily know what those are. So I wonder, first of all, um, can you talk a bit about what the reforms, the reforms he's made, and and why, if they have been, if have they actually been positive for investors? First of all, uh, and and secondly, yeah. if if there are any, if you have any concerns about the election next year in terms of you know, if he loses, is that going to be bad or is it going to be good or what, you know how how will that impact you? Okay, um, a lot there, and I'll try to keep it short. Um, so, so the reforms, you know, it's not a new story here. I think since, you know, he's serving this, you know, he's been in, in power for, for almost a decade now. And, and we've talked about, you know, all these reforms, um, even, you know, five to seven years ago. And at that time, our view was that, you know, this is great directionally, but it will take time to take effect. And I think that has really happened. If you talk about goods and services tax, for example, the tax reform, it was actually really painful at the start. It was almost destructive, you know, as a matter of fact. But today, you have, you are seeing the benefits of these tax reform, reforms coming through in better tax revenues. It has helped to buffer, um, you know, the fiscal position. So, you know, the macro fundamentals are looking better um, because even though you have lower tax rates today, the tax revenues are higher for the government. 
So, so that's one positive, you know, at the macro level. Um, but closer to us as investors, um, there are certain other reforms that I can highlight. You know, one, and these reforms have come about because of past crisis. Um, the banking sector, for example, has gone through many, many crises. Um, and today, you have a much healthier banking system. Thanks to certain initiatives like the bankruptcy code, um, you know, it's much harder to default on loans um, as a quality review by the central bank. So, and the recapitalization of banks. So today we are looking at a much healthier banking system. Um, the other example would be real estate. And that was a sector that we never dared to invest in at the start. Um, but today, again, you've gone through that Real Estate Reform Act that has weeded out, cleaned out a lot of the bad eggs within the, the sector. And you have very clearly the quality developers that are reputable, are able to deliver homes, you know, not siphoning cash. All that is, you know, a thing of the past. Um, and you, you have alongside that, you know, a, an improving real estate cycle. So, so all these have been very positive for investors. Now, if that were to change because of uh, a negative outcome of the elections next year, then yes, that would be very um, detrimental or perhaps scary for many investors, you know, the, the fear of all that good work being undone. Um, so that is a risk, one of the, one of the risks. Um, we think it is, we believe it is a tail risk or a low risk, simply because he is, I mean, you know, BJP and, and Modi still is, you know, they're still popular in the country. Um, and to their benefit, um, there is, they have a weak and fragmented opposition. So, so that plays to the strength of the, the BJP government. But that being said, you know, obviously the eyes, all eyes will be on the state elections and that's not going to be a walk in the park for them. But we have seen in the past that even with negative results from state elections at the central level, the BJP has still, um, you know, retained their position. Now, the last point here is that um, the risk for me, really, is that succession within the BJP because everyone associates India's success with Modi at the moment. Um, and he will have to step down at some point. So, and it's not clear, I suppose, who, who his successor is. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, so, so one of the reforms um, that, I, that I'm aware of is, uh, is a kind of digital ID program that I think he, he, he started rolling out. And um, I think you know, that seems quite interesting just because as as again, I think listeners might be aware, a lot of people in India are living in quite you know poor conditions, and and this system has basically enabled them to do things like open a bank account, uh, receive um, you know government handouts more easily, uh, pay taxes more easily, all those sorts of things, and I think that fits more broadly with the pattern that we've seen in the country where you know they've they've basically di the digital infrastructure, like in a lot of emerging markets, has really developed very fast and, uh, and quite quite a lot, quite substantially over the past, say, 10 years in India. Um, you, you, so you look at the, say, uh, rollout of 5G, which they started admittedly after some delays because of COVID, but they've done it. They launched in 2 million sites, uh, I think, the, in, in like six months or roughly six months. So I think the, the rollout of that was one of the fastest in the world. Um, and so I, I suppose my question there is... Um, what sort of opportunities do developments like that have for you as an investor? I mean, I think if you look at, I think we've become so accustomed 
in Western countries to just how ubiquitous technology is. And but I also think the level of kind of upgrade to your life is probably less pronounced, right? If you, you know, if you if you get, if you had a smartphone in the UK, it probably didn't. It wasn't that didn't mean it was going to be the first time that you had a bank account, for example, right? Whereas I think that might be the case um, in India. So I just yeah, if, if you have any thoughts there on how things have developed, what that means for you as, as investors there. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, credit also given to many of the talent within the country because, you know, India has a lot of skilled engineers, um, successful IT services companies. So some of them have been behind this whole digitalization um, at the public level. Um, the I guess as an investor, what we have been very happy to see is that today there are more options to be investing in some of these new economy names. I think mean, India had a bit of a lost, uh, I wouldn't say lost decade, but in a sense, there was so much attention on China because China offered that. Today, because of digitalization, you know, affordable smartphones and them coming to the public market, um, that's something that we can now look at. It's not no longer just the old economy industries. So that's one. Secondly, it's just great for the economy. It's, you know, digitalization is actually an, an enabler. So the example that you used about bank accounts, you know, and, and the phone, that really has enabled financial inclusion. So you have the banks, you know, the finance companies that today can go deeper, uh, you know, into the income levels, you know, gives them more confidence to lend because there's just better data available. And India is a credit staffed country. So that itself, you know, will also enable more business opportunities, small businesses. And there's still ongoing initiatives like um, the OCAN, which is an open credit enabled network, uh, or the ONDC, that's a public marketplace for buyers and sellers to transact. So, and this is really interesting for India because they're probably the only country that has rolled out a public, you know, digital infrastructure at population scale. Um, that one is still early days, but it just shows that there's so, so much more that, you know, having this digital infrastructure can offer um, to the local population. Okay, so on a similar theme to that, I think if you, if you look at the moment, India's India's government is investing a huge amount of infrastructure. I think I mean, I imagine uh, that, that that digital infrastructure is part of that. Um, but the the level that I saw was reading in, in preparation for this was thirty four percent of GDP, so it's the highest level in a decade. Um, so, firstly, I mean, I wonder if you can talk about what's going on there, and and, and also, do you stand to benefit from that in any ways as an investor? I mean, it might be too early to say, but do you have a sort of crowd in effect from that? So I suppose what I mean there for someone that's not familiar with the term, like is is the public investment also benefiting private firms as well? I mean, I think that's always the idea, right? Okay. Um, so in terms of the CapEx cycle, um, it's it's actually something that we're getting more excited about. But at the moment, a lot of the, capital investments are coming from the government, um, you know, building roads and, and you know, and, and just that just helps with logistics. Um, and then if you've been to India, you know that that's much needed as well. Um, so that's happening. What we're not seeing happening um, in a concrete way yet is the private sector investments. That's still a bit slow, partly because the utilization has been low for a while with COVID and, you know, the past crisis. Um, and, and yeah, just companies being under leverage, they don't actually, um, 
helpful. That that's more on the credit side. They don't actually need to borrow yet. So we're not hearing from the banks that there is a pickup in in capex loans at the moment. Um, so I think in terms of that being a more broad based capex cycle, you know, I think we have still yet to see that. But we believe, you know, there is it, there's a high possibility that this is this time is different. And I say this because when we speak to companies, um, actually many companies who have been, these are multinational companies that have been operating in India for many years now, and they have been disappointed by the government. This time they actually speak positively about the government and positively about the kind of meetings and interests that they're seeing. So the CapEx commitment is real. Um, and that itself, you know, has driven a lot of order book growth for these companies. Um, and the difference they're seeing today is that 10 years ago, when you also had a CapEx cycle pickup, um, that was very concentrated in the hands of a few um, groups, business groups with close links with, with banks. So, you know, which ended up being a bit of a disaster because there was overcapacity, you know, irrational expansion. Today, they're seeing a more broad-based participation of interest in, you know, equipment and component purchases across various industries. And coming these days, coming more from the new economy space. So like you mentioned, um, uh, the digital infrastructure spend, uh, it comes in the form of data centers as well, um, you know, renewables and so on, automation. So yes, I think, I think it's something that India really needs to be able to have a more, more links of growth. Because in the past, India is very dependent on services, on consumption. It was always missing that manufacturing piece. Um, so yes, we, we, we are positive on, on this um, theme playing out. It is crowded. Um, I mean, in terms of how a lot of investors are looking here. Um, but I think, I think it's something that um, the momentum is, is looking good. Okay, well, on the on the point you just touched on there on man, manufacturing, that is another trend that definitely here in the UK we, we we're hearing a lot about. Where, um, you know, partly because it's becoming more expensive to to do things there, and partly because of political concerns, people want to shift manufacturing away from away from China and to places like India. Um, my understanding is that India has had manufacturing before, but it was sort of low lower skill manufacturing. I, I mean, that could be. Comp- completely wrong that's just my my uh, basic knowledge so feel free to, to tell me if I'm wrong there but um I just wonder if you can talk about what the trends are there so I mean you, you've in the past say six months I've seen things with like Apple Samsung uh, Boeing all investing a lot in India um so just how meaningful do you think that is yeah I mean it has still early days it's been on a discussion for a couple of years now. So still early days, but it is definitely gathering steam. As you've mentioned, you know, these companies are publicly, um, you know, investing in India. Um, I know you asked about, you know, whether it's still kept within low cost manufacturing. I thought it was really interesting that Micron has talked about investing in, in India as well. And that's semiconductors and, you know, India never, you, you wouldn't think about India being in the semiconductor space. Um, obviously, when we're talking about it, it's also the more mature notes, not the advanced notes. So it's all relative. Um, but certainly, um, it is a, it's something that that is not it's here to stay, really because of the motivations of many of these businesses trying to have a 
China plus one or China plus two uh, strategy. Um, but when I say it's early days, it's because, you know, India has, the advantage that India has is, you know, um, available labor, but not everyone is skilled or trained. So that will take time. Um, you know, productivity and yields, you know, reported by some of these companies is still a lot lower. So, so that will take a lot of time. So India will not replace China, but India could supplement um, yeah, China. Okay. Uh, well, an- another area where the India seems to be out outdid China is in is in uh, population. So India, I think, now has the the largest population in the world. It's continuing to grow. Uh, China obviously is uh, declining or declined. I think for the first time in about fifty years, give or take, this year. Um, so that is obviously a, a kind of tailwind in, on some level. Um, but as I think a lot of managers, you know, some of the colleagues I've spoken to. Uh, in the past, we'll always point out, you know, demography is not destiny. So it, the fact that um, you have a growing population and a, a younger workforce is obviously, in theory, a positive, but it's not necessarily one in in practice. Um, but I think I think when it when it comes to India, the, the main area that I hear about uh, as as being a potential beneficiary of this trend is is consumer goods. So in in fairly simple terms. Um, People are getting wealthier. They're not. They're not. You know, it's not the same level as a developed market, but they have more disposable income, and they so uh, you do a lot of. Either you start buying things. You know, it could be like a higher. You you buy a particular brand of shampoo, and you start buying a more uh, expensive brand of shampoo. So is that a sort of trend that you see, and is that something you're sort of trying to play into into the portfolio? Yeah, we've always liked the consumption story. The middle class growth in India, um, but you know there's a lot of wealth in India, but there's it's, there's still a lot of poverty as well. So if we're talking about the income pyramid, I mean it is a pyramid, and what many um, you know proponents of India are saying would be that middle class growth, so that it'll be more of a bulge at the at the upper end. Um, so you have that trend happening. You know, in the last ten years, we've seen. I mean, again, the statistics and the data, you know, can be debatable, but I think it just shows the trend. So I've seen numbers like how back in 2014, it was 14% or 15% was middle class. And then today it's about 30%, maybe lower. So it really shows that, you know, the rising affluence is still kept within a certain pocket, Um, which is why. All the things that we talked about earlier about manufacturing, about you know multinationals coming in, job creation. I think ultimately what that all the benefits that that will bring is the multiplier effect, the, the job creation, and so that's when having this young growing middle class will be a benefit, um, and it's something that I think you know it's India cannot get wrong basically. Um, so so everything's in the right steps. Um, in terms of consumption, I mean, again, there is still a long runway here. If you think about how there are like 300 million families, maybe half of them have a washing machine, you know. So so that really shows that in terms of penetration, that growth potential is interesting for the consumer goods, you know, staples, discretionary um, sectors. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, one, so to, to 
take a slightly different tack. I mean, I think one of the things that people can can be concerned about, you know, and this is it's probably true everywhere, but I think when investing in emerging markets, people have maybe a more heightened uh, sensitivity to it is sort of governance. Um, and India is kind of, to me is quite interesting in this regard because on the one hand, you you know, earlier in the year we had the the scandal with Adani, which I think caused maybe concerns for a lot of people. Um, but then on the other hand, if you if you look at India on a sort of relative basis, you you have all the reforms that have taken place in the past decade or so. Um, even prior to that, it does have you know it's a democracy. It is even you know all democracies are flawed, but it is a democracy. Um, and and again, the legal system I think is is relatively well respected. So um, I suppose my question there is is really twofold. So one is. Do you think on a comparative basis, India actually looks a bit more attractive relative compared to a lot of other emerging markets from a from a governance point of view? But also just in general, is that something you have to be more careful of or perhaps in general, how are you approaching governance when you're investing in, in companies there? Yeah, I mean, the Adani issue um, is not the first scandal um, and neither will it be the last. I think that is, again, part of the cost for investing in emerging markets, um, and which is why we take governance very seriously, because we can talk about you know, a great macro picture, but if you're invested in the wrong company, then you know, that's, yeah, you're not going to see the returns that you expect as a, as a shareholder. Um, so, so India has improved in some ways, but would I say governance is a lot better? Um, I think we just have to look at it, um, you know, as a, at a company by company basis. I think overall, India looks better in terms of governance, again, because there's a bigger private sector, multinational companies with international standards. And I guess one of the key differences that we find, um, as opposed to a state-run economy, is that your alignment with shareholders or minority shareholders is clearer, where you're really going for profits and returns and not just pursuing a, a GDP number. Um, so yes, the way we look at it, um, you know, it's about finding, um, you know, being able to trust that the Pranamota has strong ethics and integrity, um, you know, that the way they've made, they've found success is, you know, from their own efforts and not because of crony capitalism, um, you know, strong balance sheets, financial track record of, like, you know, managing um, cash flows and, and debt levels. Those are the things that we look at. Um, and then one of the, the interesting, I mean, one of the key topics that we would like to discuss in India is succession. And actually, we often find that when there's not a clear succession plan, it can be quite detrimental to the share price. Um, so, so that's what we do. Um, I think as uh, the, the trust, I mean, if you think about the philosophy, the one thing we will not change is this focus on, on governance. Um, and at times that could cost us in short-term performance, but I think this is the the way we run money for for our, our for our trust holders. Yeah, yeah def- definitely. Okay, well, to to finish off the last question, I think if you from from an outsider's point of view, you look at India, it seems to have been a, a bit more immune from a lot of the the problems that uh, the developed world is facing. So inflation has been there, but it seems kind of bit more under control uh, and to be falling within the the central bank's target band um from from uh yeah reading around it seems like there's some optimism that the central bank is basically going to be cutting rates and be a bit more supportive 
Um, so I suppose just to finish off, if you have, do, do you think that will? Do you have any thoughts on whether or not that will happen, and and sort of whether that will act as something of a tailwind to investors? Um, and I suppose just yeah, more broadly, what what the outlook is for the country? Yeah. Um, well, I probably will be a bit more not cautious. It's not the word, but I won't really count on a rate cut happening. I think you know the the RBI has you know pause their rates. I mean, obviously, inflation as well under control. It's helped that globally commodity prices has, has come off. So that's helpful. Um, but they are still looking at what the Fed does. Um, you know, because I guess there are a few other things they need to manage, like currency and so on. So, yeah. Um, but in terms of inflation and being immune, I won't say immune, but I'll say that India has, it's used to high rates and high inflation, which is why a lot of these issues that are perhaps very painful, you know, in developed markets and even in Singapore. Um, in India, I think they're used to these levels. Um, but you have, on the other hand, you know, better growth coming through, whether it's a post-COVID recovery or some of the structural benefits that we've discussed earlier. This is why we would be positive on India um, rather than call, you know, a rate cut cycle um, for India. Yeah. But I think one of the interesting points is that because India today has, you know, it's more resilient in terms of managing all these external shocks. I think we've also seen cost of capital come down. So that, again, is also supportive for valuations. Yeah. Um, outlook for India. Um, obviously, you can tell that's very positive, you know, as long as the reform initiatives, you know, the benefits are starting to play out. Um, as long as we see that resilience and growth um you know i mean i think all that is to us less of a concern our concern is probably valuations you know at the moment you know i've mentioned earlier how there has been a bit of flow effect we have seen a lot of exuberance so any pullback for us will be a, a healthy one um and the other risk you know what is elections which is a you know i, I mentioned long uh, a tail risk how monsoon is playing out because that also affects inflation um, but so far, it's it's been okay. The monsoon has been has been um, not too, not perceived as being too negative or disruptive. Yeah. Okay. So, well, hopefully that hopefully that continues. So, um, Kirsty, thanks very much for for joining us, and um, yeah, hopefully we can chat again soon. Thanks for having me.